The world has gone insane. Cosplayers rule the conventions. Gamers dominate the tabletop and the internet. Sci-fi subjugates the movies. And fantasy rules the bookstore with an iron fist. Only one group can bring order to this unruly mob. A team of uber geeks, masters of the nerdly arts, trained for decades in the hobby shops and basements of the nation. Mobilized by the secret masters, they are the Department of Nerdly Affairs. Welcome, operatives, to the Department of Nerdly Affairs. I'm your host, Rob Patterson, here with my co-host, Don Chisholm. Yay. How are you doing today, Don? I'm here. Awesome. We can work with that. (laughs) So today we're going to talk about Star Wars, and more specifically, our memories of Star Wars and how it's affected our lives, and basically how it's affected nerd culture in general. So, to start off with, why don't we just go right to it? Don, when did you first see Star Wars? Oh, I haven't seen it yet. Uh-oh. <laughs> I'm waiting. Good night, folks. I'm waiting for the novelization. I think you're going to be a... Wait, you can buy the novelization on Amazon. Oh, man, why come not you told me this? I've wasted my oh, life. Right. Actually, the novelization, at least of A New Hope, <laughs> is way more uh, complete, apparently, than the version that we're used to. Okay. Because it's based on George Lucas's original script, so kind of like the NPR version. You know, the NPR did an audio drama radio play version of it as well. Right. And both of them are based on George Lucas's original script. So all the stuff with Biggs is in there, the stuff about the T-16 shooting Womp Rats, all that kind of stuff. It's all there in the novel and the audio drama version, just not in the movie. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's one of those weird things. I'm surprised that no one actually went back no one being Lucas, I guess, in this case, and actually added that stuff, because apparently the stuff with Biggs, I've heard, was actually shot. Just for some reason, it just never made it to the finished film. Yeah, there was a a bunch, because I remember when it first came out, (laughs) I was Mm -hmm. lying earlier, I did see it. (laughs) But when you went to the uh, lobby cards, had pictures of the do-back, and the version that I had seen at first didn't have the do-back in it. Oh, Okay. So even when it came out the first time, there may have been actually more than one version, are you saying? Or that was just stuff that was cut out and just used for the advertising? Yeah, I think what... Because what, there was a lot that was filmed, because the stuff in Anchorhead, I know, got mm-hmm. filmed. And the stuff with Biggs got filmed, because if you remember, at the end, when Luke joins the Rebels, he meets Biggs. There's a whole big scene, and you're like, it's like he knows that guy from somewhere. Yeah, I always wondered about that, until later on I found out who Biggs was supposed to be. Yeah, I kind of lucked out in that because I remember reading the first two issues of the comic before I saw the movie. Oh, I see. And That makes sense. Yeah, and as a kid, I remember I didn't realize that the scenes from the comic weren't in the movie. Right. In my head, it was all already kind of stitched together. Oh, okay. So, yeah, you were filling in all the missing pieces. Mm-hmm. Actually, come to think of it, how many times did you see Star Wars? I know some people saw it more than once. I only saw it once myself, but how many times did you see it in the theater? Uh, The original I must have seen about 20 times. Oh, only 20. Yeah. Uh, Empire was the one that I saw a bunch. It was was over 40. Wow. Yeah, we went like... You you saw A New Hope 20 times and Empire 40 times. Yes. You must have had an amazing allowance. No, I lucked out because... Everybody in my family, 
from like my parents, like my mom anyway, uh, my grandparents, my aunts and my uncles. Everybody loves stuff like that. So whenever any of them went to go see it again, they'd ask, do you want to come? And I'd be like, yes, yes, I do. And that's how I ended up seeing it so many times. Well, I guess this is the pre-internet, even pre-video cassette days. So basically, your options were TV, radio, books, movies, and that's pretty much it. Yeah, and that was, uh, because that's one of the things, too, I remember. As a kid, Star Wars became like the entire universe to me. And a lot of people remember, who, who were around back then, collecting the cards. Mm-hmm. I did, too. Yeah, and and that got out of favor by the 80s. You didn't see the movie cards being that big a deal. And I think, again, it was because that was one of the only ways to relive the movie. That makes sense. I'd never thought of it that way. Yeah. It's the same thing with, uh, they used to do comic book adaptions of movies. Mm-hmm. And then that stopped in the 80s because I could actually just get the movie. Whereas in the 70s, that was one of the only ways you could relive things because there was no home theater. Right. Okay, that makes sense. I could see that. Huh. I'd never thought about that. The last movie I remember having cards offhand would be E.T. Yeah. I remember that there were E.T. cards because I actually collected them for a bit when I was a kid. But I don't remember any movies after that having cards. There probably were some I just didn't notice. Yeah, there were there were a bunch because um, it's funny you mentioned the E.T. cards because my mother still has her full set. You're kidding. No, my mother is the biggest E.T. fan that ever lived. I did not know that. Yeah. Huh. So, well, but... now she's been outed. I'm sure she'll appreciate that. <laughs> she'll never talk to me again. So, but but it's funny because th- when I was a little, little kid, there was a, a variety store kind of close to our house that... Mm-hmm. I think what it was is they'd get warehouse finds and then they'd stock. Because you could go there and you'd find model kits from like 10 years earlier in the back of the store. And, right. And they had just tons of like the, the old movie cards. It amazed me even then what they had done card sets for. Hmm. Like the okay. the, the Sergeant Pepper movie that they did with like, uh, like the, the Bee Gees and that. There was a card set for that. Okay. Yeah. I think I do remember seeing those. Yes. Okay. <laughs> it wasn't just a horrible dream. Yeah, I think I actually do remember seeing that. I do remember the variety store near us also had a lot of the cards for different things. Yeah. Um, obviously, I only cared about movies that, well, I cared about, but there were other movies as well. And I do remember different card sets were available. I guess, yeah. hmm, I just lost interest in them after a point, so I never paid attention when they disappeared. Yeah, and, and a lot of people didn't. Like I say, I think uh, it was mostly because of home entertainment. Hmm. Once they had V... That would make sense. Yeah, because the cards disappeared, it looks like, right around the time that VCRs started to become common. Yep. Yeah, I'd say like huh. around 84, 85. That, yeah, that would be right. And then they brought them back in the 90s, but then they brought back, like, movie cards, and that is super expensive collectibles. Right. Which no one really cared about. Well, they did for a bit, because, again, it it was uh, one of the things that, like, the speculator types kind of glommed onto. It didn't last, because, again, you didn't have, um, you didn't have the popular interest in it. Mm Mm-hmm. 
So there, there's no point me spending like a bajillion dollars to track down a full set of like super expensive Star Wars cards when I could have spent ten bucks, got the actual movie, and watched it till my eyes glazed over. Well, that's true. Huh. Going with your theory, now, I know the cards were all numbered. Were they actually numbered in order? Like, were they in scene order, do you remember? I don't recall. Yeah, I... I don't... I don't think they were, were they? No, I think, um... Because thinking of the, the Star Wars ones, I do think they were they were in order, and then you'd have, like, extra cards. Right. So you'd have, like, like uh, here's a picture of C-3PO, and it would be randomly inserted somewhere in the, in, in the deck. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, they were. Because, again, if you remember, the backs of them would explain the scene, and it was a retelling of the story. Yes, that makes sense. Huh. So that was basically, yeah, a way to go through. Because I'm remembering I had a... One of those pick books for holding photographs, uh-huh. but I'd stuffed it full of the cards, and I had them in order on the pages when I was a kid. And so I remember, yeah, I think I remember them being in order. Mm-hmm. I really do. I think I remember them being in, in scene order. Yeah. And then extras at the end. Yeah, sounds right. And then they'd do the next set, and it would be slightly different takes of the, 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 the each scene, or it would be that next set would focus on a different scene that there was one or two cards in the last set. And this one, there's like five and right. Hmm. So, okay, let's take this another step then. So did this, uh, cause you to start collecting other cards? Like you obviously collected some, um, I gotta be honest, like as a kid, the, the star Wars cards I collected just because it was star Wars. Right. And, um, like I say, it's it, absolutely desperate for anything Star Wars. And I used to use the cards because I do, like, custom figures, which basically meant repainting a Death Squad commander as a Rebel Trooper because mm-hmm. I was, like, seven. But I'd use, mm-hmm. the, I'd use the cards as models for things like that. So Okay. No, no, so you definitely need them. Yeah. In fact, I'm sure you probably wore them out because you, like, used them so much. Well, yeah. Yeah, I didn't have a book. I just used to rubber band them together. There's an odd question. Do you still have any of your old Star Wars cards? Oh, no. They died a long, long, long time ago. Yeah, yeah. I have no idea where mine are. And then They might like actually say, be in my parents' attic somewhere. I have no idea. Well, you should check. I actually should. Well, my mother keeps bugging me to go over and clean out all my old stuff. This <laughs> might actually give me a good reason to. I mean... Even though I consider myself, even now, a Star Wars fan, because obviously it had such a major impact on my life, like it did pretty much everyone of our generation, I actually don't have any Star Wars memorabilia at all in my home. None. Wow. The only thing I have are the DVDs of the re-releases, the ones that had the original versions and the new versions of the like first three films. Oh, okay. Those are the only Star Wars DVDs... Or anything I have in my home. Really? Yeah. Wow. I Actually, no, no, I'm wrong. I do have the soundtracks for those first... I have the soundtrack for A New Hope. The extended soundtrack. The one was like two CDs. Right. And I have the extended soundtrack for Empire Strikes Back. I don't think I bothered to get the soundtrack for Jedi, though, because it was basically just more of the same from the previous two. Right. 
Wow. So, okay, so there we go. That's as much Star Wars memorabilia as I have in my home. Man, they're going to make you hand in your nerd card for that. Probably I shouldn't be revealing this on air, you're right. Because <laughs> i got to be honest. Wait a moment, then. Hmm? How much Star Wars memorabilia do you have, then? Um, I got a fair amount. Mine's mostly limited to the uh, the old West End Games role-playing game. Oh, okay. And I've got a ton of the action figures. Mm-hmm. Because uh, I started doing customs for the action figures. I had to have, like, a, a Valence. They never made Valence, and that was one of the uh, biggest traumas of my childhood, Star Wars-wise. Who is Valence? From the old uh, Marvel comic. Oh, okay, that comic that I never read. Got it. Oh, see, I got tons of those, too. He was he was the guy, he was a stormtrooper that got mm-hmm. messed up during the attack on the Death Star, and they rebuilt him as a cyborg. Oh, sounds cool. And it made him unhinged, and it, it, he, it was his life's goal to hunt down Luke Skywalker. Okay. You don't remember, oh, man, you don't remember that? I've read a few, actually, of the old comics mm-hmm. back in the day, but I was never a big fan of them. I guess what happened is is that when those comics were coming out, I was more into superhero stuff at that time. Oh, so wow. I like read a few of them. I think I also was bothered by what I considered at the time to be really bad art. Oh, okay. I mean, the superhero comics didn't have the best art either, but the Star Wars stuff, if it didn't actually look like proper models, like if it was off-model, it just drove me nuts. And they had a habit in those comics, at least the early ones, of just drawing, like, they draw a box and stick a couple cylinders on it or something and call it a spaceship, if I remember right. Yeah, but you know why they did that? Because they didn't have any models to work from? Yeah, that was part of it. Because that's, that's another thing that, I post-Star Wars, I don't think people realize that when when the first movie came out, nobody really knew how to market merchandise for a movie. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons, if you look back to the 70s, to the era of the original film, there's all kinds of weird stuff that came out because nobody knew exactly who was watching this and what kind of thing would they be interested in. And it just took off like with with no warning. Mm-hmm. And that was part because I remember for the comic, um, they didn't they got the right Marvel got the rights to do the comic. And it was the kind of thing that nobody on either side of that deal was really expecting a great deal from it. Because you'd never Nobody expected anything from Star Wars. Yeah. And and then when it when it hit really, really hard, everybody like freaked right out and tried to capitalize it on on it right away. Of course. And then the Star Wars comic that Marvel did, they had a weird habit of putting people with really stylized art on it. Mm-hmm. So the first, like, the actual movie adaption, most of that was Howard Chaykin. Right. And and he did that weird, almost expressionist, uh, like, art style for, for the first few issues. And it looked like he was experimenting himself, and part of it was uh, they didn't really know what things looked like. They only had, like, a couple of, of maybe photos or sketches to go off of. Right. Well, they didn't exactly have model kits in front of them to use as models, literally. Yeah, not right away. Cause the com- I mean, I, I imagine they did eventually, though. Yep, because um, that's one of the things for the comic. A lot of people are big fans of the post-Empire stories, and the art was uh, 
Oh, I can't remember the guy's name. You fail. Yes, I do. I fail a lot. But it was... um. Si- At least you're trying. Yeah. Was it Simonson? Walt, Walt Simonson? Yeah, I think that was, was it. Who did the... Um, it was more dead on. Like, it looked like the show. And it was more... It was good, like, solid artwork. It wasn't as stylized. It wasn't cartoony. It wasn't weird. It was very, very, like, practical and technically competent. Mm-hmm. And I think part of that is because by that point, you did have a lot to work with. And it really was more in sync with the actual movies than the guys that came before. Okay. So hmm. that makes sense. Cause that was the same. Those were the same, the same, uh, artist and writer that were doing the, uh, the backup strips that I think were appearing in amazing heroes at the time. Possibly. Were they the same ones doing the newspaper strips as well? Uh, I think at that time they might've been. Because the original newspaper ones were more like the Marvel comic, and I think it was more of the same guys that were doing them. I seem to remember. I think the newspaper ones were written by Roy Thomas. Yeah, and I think he was he was he was also the guy that was doing the uh, when when uh, Simonson there took over the art. He was doing the writing. Mm-hmm. And it was a, okay. Yeah, it was another one of them cases where he actually had a good solid idea of what he wanted to do. Right. So you started getting in the comic and the newspaper these longer, more detailed stories, whereas the the earliest ones were still like episode of the week, have something weird happen. Yes. Well, that makes sense. I mean, Roy Thomas was used to doing epics. He'd probably just come off Conan at that point. Yeah, that's true. And nothing gets more epic than Conan. No. <laughs> My God, I wonder how much stuff Roy Thomas actually wrote. Oh, yeah, for a good reason. He must Mm -hmm. be... I think I'd be scared to look him up just to see how much stuff he actually wrote because I bet it's something like three or four thousand comic stories in his lifetime. Yeah, I definitely would not be surprised if it was. Hmm. Okay, so obviously the Star Wars comics were favorites of yours. You're... Oh hell yeah! Very knowledgeable about them. Yeah, they well they still are. Like I just reread a bunch of them like a year ago. Okay. Um, the only Star Wars comics that I really took to was there was a series done by Dark Horse when Dark Horse had the rights. Okay. I'm trying to remember what it was called. It was called something like Star Wars. Oh, what was it? It wasn't Star Wars Rebellion. But it was basically the, it's basically the Clone Wars. It was the Clone Wars area stuff. Um, it's, okay. It's where Quinlan Voss got introduced. Oh, and yeah. I think a lot of them were written by John Ostrander. Okay. And yeah, Quinlan Voss, who looks like he stepped out of Grimjack. <laughs> um, hmm. <laughs> coincidence? I think not. <laughs> Um, and yeah, they did a lot of great stories about him and other characters set during that era. Hmm. Anyway, I was into reading those for a little while. Those actually caught my attention. So for a while I was reading those, but generally speaking, Star Wars comics have not kind of been my thing. It's, right. it's very odd, actually, how Star Wars, for the most part, for me, is the original movies. And then there's the Clone Wars TV series, which I loved. And I... Mm-hmm. 
tend to pretend the prequels didn't exist. And <laughs> actually, the current series Rebels is actually pretty good, too. The first season was kind of hit or miss, but the second season, when they've actually started to merge it more with the Clone Wars, has actually started to really take off. Yeah, I could see that. The Rebels, I thought, was weird because the heroes are the most boring bunch of people in the galaxy. Like, I find them to be really generic. Yes, but I wholeheartedly yeah, agree. But they put so much work and attention into the villains of the show. You're right, they do, don't they? I hadn't thought about that, but you're right. Yeah, like, even the generic Imperial officers, they're all different from each other. They're all somebody. They all have at least some minor personality hook that you're like, oh, okay, I get that guy. Yeah, you're right. It's weird. They're putting more emphasis into the villains than they are into the heroes in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Huh, that's interesting. I guess the main characters being very generic and kind of boring is a side effect, basically, of it being done by Disney, I think. Yeah. They're meant to be worldwide... They're meant to be internationally saleable characters in an internationally saleable young adult general audience story. Right. By which I mean that they're meant to be bland, boring, and completely safe. They're not going to offend anyone with those characters. Yeah, I could Yeah, I could see that. <laughs> um, at least that's my take. It's basically the result of the Disneyfication of Star Wars. Right. Yeah. I I, at least that's my take on things. That's They feel safe customizing the villains because the villains are meant to be different. And so there are a lot, a lot more latitude with them. Because they don't have to sell action figures of the villains. Oh. The audience won't get turned off by the villains. I know oh, yeah, they'll sell action figures. They're not going to sell action what figures I mean of the bad guys. They... Yeah. <laughs> well, they'll sell action figures of the bad guy. But what I'm trying to say is they will sell um, the heroes in a more wholesome light. So there's a lot more latitude for the villains. That's my take on it. I could say, I think part of it too is just uh, like an old standard for things is the villain is almost always more interesting than the hero because you're a lot more limited in what you can do to make, I guess you'd say, a convincing hero. Right. Like like even for Star Wars, the very original film, all of the heroes are, are, they're, they're not exactly generic, but they're very archetypical. Yes, they are. They're super archetypical. Yeah, to to the point that, you know, he's a very Han Solo character is now a descriptor we use for other characters from other stories. Yes, it is. You are correct, yeah. So there you go. I mean, they're archetype, and Rebels is also running off archetypes. I think that was one of the things that was a little bit refreshing about the Clone Wars, uh-huh. is you got much more variety with it. And in some ways, I think that made it slightly more mature storytelling. Yeah, maybe. Like, once it got going, because I know... Um, yes. The the Clone Wars series they did that were the little, like, 10-minute films, I, I didn't care for those at all. Mm-hmm. And I think... Me neither. Yeah, because they were... They, again, it was really generic. Mm-hmm. And when they did the uh, the CGI one, I didn't like the first few, and I think it was because they were trying... Like, they, they wanted to make Anakin and Obi-Wan the main characters. Mm-hmm. And, again, it seemed really bland. But once you started getting into, like, the clones themselves especially, 
I thought that that's when it started getting interesting. I would agree. Mm. One of the weird things is they would do those clone-centric episodes, but a lot of the clone-centric episodes are actually completely out of chronological order. Mm-hmm. Like, they introduce clone characters in Season 1, and then in, like, Season 3, I think it is, you actually get to see them back at the Academy. It's really odd, yeah. where the Clone Wars has an o- is overall going forward, but every now and then they stick in episodes that were supposed to have occurred even back at the same time or before other episodes took place, or before other things happened. Okay, I can remember a couple like that, yeah. Yeah, it tended to be a kind of... Uh, we'll call it a half-hearted anthology show where there was an overall focus and there was an overall advance going on, but every now and then they would stick in random stuff that just kind of was out of left field. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. So, all right. Anyway, so, okay. Enough, we could talk about the Clone Wars for a while and Rebels for a while, but let's uh, reel things back a little bit. Okay. So, back to you, Don. Yeah. How do you think seeing Star Wars actually affected you in your, like, tastes, in your fandom? I mean, in another episode, we talked about how kids are kind of imprinted with what they think is cool at a young age. Obviously, you thought Star Wars was cool. It blew your young mind. How did that actually affect the rest of your fandom in a way? Not just for Star Wars, but just your interests and your hobbies and other things as well. It's funny you mention that, because ever since I was like about 11 or 12 years old, I favored big black vests and stovepipe boots. Hmm, I wonder who wore those. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, yeah I, I didn't realize that until like just a few years ago. I'm like, you know, this ensemble seems a little familiar to me. I've been wearing it forever. <laughs> yeah, you were wearing those when I first met you low many years ago. Yeah. <laughs> And now that suddenly makes absolute perfect sense. Yeah. Yeah, I don't have the hair for it anymore, though. That's the... Uh... Well, unfortunately not. But <laughs> do you still wear a vest? Yeah, yeah. I, I started wearing, like, the big black utility vest because I keep stuff in the pockets. Huh. Okay. So, folks, if you see a guy who looks like Han Solo walking down the street, but he's got a, you know, crew cut... That might be Dawn, at least if you're in Windsor, Ontario. Yeah, actually, nowadays I look like Tor Johnson playing Han Solo, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> okay, a bulked up Han Solo. Yeah, kind of. Um, because I asked that question. Well, okay, I'll talk about myself for a second. I asked that question because I was thinking back how Star Wars has absolutely influenced my tastes in many, many things. Like, for example... I have always preferred the more romantic side of science fiction, fantasy, you know, the swashbuckling side. Um, And I generally do not like dark stuff very much. I mean, you know, I had my phase once upon a time like we all do. But I generally have found that it's the swashbuckling romantic stuff that I love. That's what I have a passion for in my life. And I pretty much trace that back to Star Wars. That Star Wars was the first thing that I saw that really imprinted on me that this was cool. And it's kind of stuck with me even to this very day. Huh. So has anything like that happened to you? Have you have you found that your tastes have been influenced by Star Wars in some way? I think in a lot of ways they were because I was into all kinds of stuff before. Mm-hmm. But Star Wars, it's kind of the realization of everything all in one. 
because cause you mentioned how it's like the big, mm-hmm. the the bigger than life swashbuckling heroicness, and that's part of mm-hmm. the story. But it's also the original Star Wars is really dark in some ways. Yes, yeah, and it is gritty because you think about it. How do they like introduce Darth Vader? He snaps a dude's neck. You know. That's true. Obi-Wan is like the old, like, wise man of the mountains, and one of the first things we see him do is chop a dude's arm off. That's true. And and then um, even the idea that Lucas wanted, as he put it, space to look lived in, that when you get to, like, Tatooine and at the Rim Worlds, everything's all wore out and wore down, mm-hmm. that incorporates a lot of... Um, like say late sixties, early seventies sci-fi was all post-apocalypse. Yeah, Star Wars is in many ways supposed to be a quasi-post-apocalyptic setting. Mm-hmm. And it mixes all of that together, and then you throw in monsters, and you've got like these weird ancient wizard guys with strange powers and spaceships, and and it was kind of everything put together. And I think that's one of the reasons it took off so much, because no matter what you liked. Some of it was in there, and that gave you an in to the rest of the story. Because if you remember, too, at that time, uh, fantasy and sword and sorcery was having a big comeback. Mm-hmm. And there's plenty of that in Star Wars as well. Absolutely there is, yeah. They even wander through a dungeon at one point in the original movie. <laughs> That's true. Huh, I'd never thought of it that way. You're right, Star Wars has a mm-hmm. bit of sword and sorcery, a bit of swashbuckling... There's some military sci-fi elements to it. Well, just military elements to it. Mm -hmm. It really is a film that's got a bit of everything. A bit of romance. Yeah, it's all there. Yep. And that's... So is what you are saying is that Star Wars is basically the perfect film? (laughs) Well, I I think in, um... Sorry, just let me finish. Because I would have to say that it's not a very good film. Like, in terms of the dialogue is really clunky. It has its problems... Um, it kind of trundles along, yet it's an astoundingly entertaining film. Yeah. Um, I guess it just hits all the right notes. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, because it's, it's, you run into the problem if you want to talk about good as an ultimate quantifier, because good usually refers to it follows the established pattern for what makes a, a classic quality high, like, highbrow, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And it kind of, it doesn't necessarily do that, but it wasn't meant to showcase, I guess you'd say, the, the writing of, of the people who, who did the script. It was more meant to just be, here's what happens when these people end up in this situation. Mm-hmm. And it works really well for that wonkiness and all, because in real life, people don't talk scripted. Right. Like, they, they, they sound wonky and a little off, and you got a, a bit of that in the film. Because that's one of the problems, especially if you watch, like, uh, what are considered good dramas. Everybody speaks in soliloquy, and nobody does that in real life. Well, I suppose that's because you have to get a certain amount of exposition out in that limited time. <laughs> yeah, and then it, it's also sharpening. It's that you want this speech to sound like this, so everything focuses in into that kind of speaking, that kind of tone, that kind of everything. Also, remember, there's a fantasy element to it, too. People wish they actually sounded like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, 
okay, so Star Wars had a little bit of everything for everyone. Yep. And maybe that's one of the reasons why pretty much everyone went to see it, in many cases multiple times back in the day. I know I did. <laughs> well, yes, obviously you did. So did you own most of the Star Wars action figures then? You say did in past tense. Um, okay. Um, <laughs> well, I'm assuming that you lost a lot of those action figures over the years and had to replace them, right? Oh, yeah, I did. I, I played with them to death when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of them, they they literally would like fall apart. I remember I had a headless Luke Skywalker for a bit because I had to wait to find another one to replace him. I had a headless Darth Vader. <laughs> yeah, I could see that. Uh, I was watching some Saturday morning cartoon, don't ask me why, and at some point I got really excited and I picked up Vader and bit his head off. <laughs> I was a kid. <laughs> I don't know why. I just started chewing on his head and it popped right off. <laughs> so, so what I did is I took a, I found a stick. <laughs> Because I discovered that the inside was hollow and the head was hollow. Right. So I found a stick and I stuck the <laughs> stick in. Then I propped the head on top of the stick. Uh-huh. And so Vader had this wobbly, <laughs> wobbly long neck. Uh, I don't know why that's so funny. <laughs> I still to this day have no idea why I did that. But I still remember my well. Darth Vader with a stick for a head. Well, it worked, so... Sorry, my Darth Vader with a stick for a neck. Right. Not a head. He still had his head, sort of. <laughs> slightly toothied, but... Slightly chewed on, but whatever. Right. <laughs> yeah, I remember I remember that. If you've ever seen the Rift Tracks version of the uh, Star Wars Holiday Special, they show an ad for, like, the action figures, and you can hear, I think it's Kevin's, like, Oh my god, there are Star Wars action figures? How come nobody told me? Was he serious? No. <laughs> okay. I hope not. I mean, maybe if he just woke up out of his coma. Then... Just checking. I mean, it's entirely <laughs> possible there are people who are not aware of Star Wars action figures. I mean, though, besides those who weren't born in North America or an English-speaking right. country. Oh, I don't know about that. Like, that was, again, um, Jaws was the original summer blockbuster, but Star Wars is the movie that taught us how to market the summer blockbuster. Mm-hmm, and the action, the action figures were part of, part of it. Yeah, and, and the, the figures were available all over the planet. Okay, so you had a lot of Star Wars action figures. Now, do you think, since I know you're fond of collecting action figures, do you think that Star Wars was what set that off? Uh, for me personally? Mm-hmm. Uh, no. Okay. No, because I was, uh, as a little, 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 little kid, I was a huge fan of, like, the 8-inch Mego figures. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, in a lot of ways, that's what started, uh, well... The action figure thing in general probably started in, like, the uh, 60s with the original G.I. Joe. Mm-hmm. Like, those were popular. And then Mego did 8-inch ones because um, the fuel crisis in the early 70s made oil expensive, so they made them smaller so it'd be cheaper to produce. Okay. Well, you can save most of that for our uh, Mego episode <laughs> we'll eventually get to. Right. Because then... Um, the the Star Wars figures they came out with, mm-hmm. they made them small so you could make the vehicles. 
and right. and I know as a kid, yeah, that was a, a a big thing. I went nuts for all that stuff because it gave you more play value. Mm-hmm. That you could have the spaceships, and you had like the Millennium Falcon. It was huge, and it was like a playset slash spaceship that you'd end up tripping and bouncing down the stairs with because it weighed more than you did as a kid. Yeah, I had the Jawa Sandcrawler, mm-hmm. the remote because it had a remote control, right? Sort of. So you so you could like send your figures on a trip all around the uh, all around the living room or all around well the kitchen you know that kind of thing or the backyard yeah of course if i remember right it had basically only like two buttons like it was like go forward and turn right or something but it didn't actually have a turn left button oh it would reverse and when it were when you reversed it turned ah okay yeah it, it wasn't a really complicated remote control setup <laughs> apparently not yeah, I think when I was a kid, I disconnected the motor so that you could just push it. That was probably a smart move. Wait, without the motor, you couldn't push it? Yeah, because the, uh, as I remember, the, the gears were always engaged. Mm-hmm. So if oh. if the motor wasn't on and you tried pushing it, you're pushing against the uh, the engine to spin you're the wheel. pushing against the engine, right. Yeah. Okay, that would make sense. Huh. I'd never noticed that. But now that I think back, you're right. Yeah. Yeah, I used to... Because eventually it died. So well, yeah. I just I would push it, but of course the wheels weren't turning. Now that I think about it, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Huh. But even then, that was a that was another one. It was a great a great toy because it was just like the inside of the uh, the sand crawler. Exactly. Yeah. Well, the best ones were the Millennium Falcon, mm-hmm. the sand crawler, and of course the Adat that came out later on was awesome. Yeah, that was a good one. I like the Death Star. Yeah, the Death Star was pretty good. Never had one of those, but I do remember it was a pretty good toy. Yeah. Okay, so Star Wars didn't get you started on figures, but it did it have any effect on your figure collecting after it then? Uh it did um because it because it was possible to get all of them at the time. Mm-hmm. Like I don't think uh anybody who who wasn't around then who's familiar with when they brought back the action figures in the 90s. They went mm-hmm. nuts where every month there'd be like 10 new ones that came out. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, back in the day, if you remember, they'd do like, say, I think they'd be like 10 a year. Right. Yeah, there was. And then thanks to stuff like the card and the books and stuff, I used to obsess about all the characters they never made. And I used to convert mm-hmm. them. I used to paint them. Or uh, what I would do is do like a paper Well, you mentioned read. making Valence. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I still have him. Really? You still have your papier-mâché valence? Yeah, it wasn't exactly papier-mâché. I used to use uh, tissue paper soaked in a uh, tester's liquid glue. Oh, okay. Makes sense. Which is That would work. It's probably why I got the shakes now from, from that, but at the time, it seemed like a good idea. Okay. Sniffing a little too much glue during your youth. I understand. Yeah. That explains a few things. Yeah, we can get more into that in the model kit episode. That's a long story, but... <laughs> Definitely, and we'll definitely do a model kit episode at some point because that'll be awesome. <laughs> but yeah, that was that was part of it because it was um, again too for for the company when they started mm-hmm. doing the figures, they were just learning how to do the marketing, mm-hmm. and I think that's why you got weird choices like uh, the second run of the original Star Wars figures had the power droid, mm-hmm. which, if you remember, was in the movie for all of like. Four seconds, I think. Well, they were running out of things to do. Well, yeah, but the thing was, they weren't, because it wasn't until the 90s they made an actual, like, rebel trooper. 
Really? Yeah, there was no rebel troopers back during the original set. Not not from the original one. They, they I think uh, the first ones they did were the Hoth ones. Okay, that doesn't surprise me. But yeah, the guys with the big helmets that you saw all through the original film. Yeah, they they didn't make those until like the mid nineties. Wow. So they were making droids that had been on the screen for like a tenth of a second. Yeah. But they didn't make the Rebel Star Wars Trooper guys that were everywhere during the movie. Yeah. Like that's, And I think, again, it was because they weren't exactly sure um, what would go over. Mm-hmm. That they figured for the heroes, everybody wants like Han Solo and Luke Skywalker. They don't care about these no-name guys. And then they just made like Stormtroopers. And, and Which that. is probably true. Well, it could have been, but I mean, if people were going to buy the power droid, you'd think they'd be uh, more inclined to buy a rebel trooper. I suspect if we go back, the reason behind the selling the power droid was that R2 and 3PO were probably selling, or should I say outselling, most of the other figures by a huge margin. Yuck. I would bet that everyone wanted an R2 and 3PO. Yeah, that's... That's true. So probably they figured, wow, kids love droids. Okay, let's make lots. Well, I, that And that makes sense, because in the second run, they also did R5-D4 and the uh, Death Star droid. Yeah, for some reason, when I was a kid, I always loved R5-D4 more than R2-D2. He, I always loved that design. He explodes. <laughs> well, there's that, too. He's He's like the cop one day away from retiring in, like, an action film. Well, actually, I was just reading on Crack.com. They had something like some article about um, Star Wars characters being like really dark or something like that. That came out. It came out recently. Right. And one of the things they said is there's a version of. I think it's in the novel. It says that R2D2 actually sabotaged R5D4. That's why he explodes. Because yeah. R2 wanted to get picked, so he basically sabotaged him back in the ship. And then caused him to explode. He basically murdered R5-D4. Sorry, kids. <laughs> well, yeah, that's from... I think that was the novel. Because uh, in the 90s, when they started doing the expanded universe stuff, the story was that R5-D4 committed suicide because he knew that him and R2 were talking. And he knew R2 was like a rebel droid and needed to get the message, blah, 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 blah. Okay, that's the child-friendly, positive version of the story. Well, maybe slightly more child-friendly. It still involves suicide. There is that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you're right. Um, It involves suicide, but it's better than making R2 a murderer. Well, depending how you look at it. Yeah, I suppose it does depend on which crime you consider as worse. Well, sacrificing yourself (laughs) for your buddy is a time-honored, you know, positive, heroic trait. The other one makes... R2, a cold-blooded, mechanical little, you know, prick. <laughs> it does, and, and I could see it, because again, when you look at the uh, the original movie, there was a fair amount of somewhat dark things like that in it. So, obviously, Star Wars figures were a piece of your childhood. Yeah. Um, how about uh, model kits? Did you get, like, a model X-Wing or a model TIE Fighter, any of that stuff? I had a couple, but I remember the uh, the figures I enjoyed more as a kid, because you could do more with them. Right. That makes sense. So, like, the vehicle... The only thing I remember was the uh, the model they did of R2-D2 was pretty good, because it had all the extra little arms and features and stuff. 
Right. Whereas, okay, yeah, that makes sense. The action figure one was kind of like a tube with legs. <laughs> yes, it was. It was a tube with legs <laughs> and a little plastic half-moon top or something. Yeah, that clicked. Yes, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's go off on a slightly different track then. Okay. Um, I was thinking to myself earlier about how... I think that part of the reason I fell in love with anime later on was also because of Star Wars. They're very similar to each other, especially like the 70s and 80s anime. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not a big coincidence that much of it is very similar to Star Wars. And even things like Mobile Suit Gundam has a lot of Star Wars influence. Yeah. And I think that that's one of the things that actually attracted me to it. Okay. Um... And, of course, after I'd watched Star Wars, a show called Gatchaman came on shortly after. Of course, it was called Battle of the Planets back then. Well, the re-edited version was meant to be as close to Star Wars as they could possibly get it. (laughs) Yeah. And as an end result, it made me love Gatchaman, which led, of course, to watching other things like uh, Space Cruiser Motto, which predates Star Wars, but, again, it has some similarities, definitely. Yeah. So anything with space fighters, anything with uh, science fiction action, I was there. Right. And even some of my early comic tastes, I think, probably were connected to Star Wars. I mean, Star Wars and especially Marvel comic books. I'd say Marvel more than DC. There is a stylistic and tone similarity there. I'm not sure if it was the Star Wars influence in the comics or the comics just had always been like that and Star Wars was just connecting in with it but i noticed that a lot of superhero comics of that period have a very similar tone to star wars right and so i think that that was one of the things that got me into collecting comic books as well so my love of both comics and manga and anime are definitely from star wars yeah i could see that um one of the reasons i think that that works out and it's probably that way for a lot of people is all of those things drew heavily from like the old 1930s, 1940s pulp traditions and the old movie serials and things like mm-hmm. that. Absolutely they did, no question. So it's it's easy to tie it in. As I recall, uh, Star Wars is originally going to be a Flash Gordon movie. Well, it depends. It went through different phases. Yeah. S- Star Wars at one point was actually supposed to be a Lensman movie. Oh, okay. But they couldn't get the rights. Yeah. That's why we have our main character with his mysterious power okay yeah um to give you an idea the force in one of lucas's earlier drafts was called aresia aresia is the name of the planet where the lensmen are given their powers in the lensman novels right hint hint (laughs) um so that's one of the reasons why i often refer to star wars as lensman dipped in soy sauce because it's like he took uh, Kurosawa movies and 70s Kung Fu movies and kind of merged them with Lensman and a little bit of like World War II uh, bomber movies like the Dam Busters and the end result was Star Wars. Yeah, I could definitely see that. I mean, you can see influences from all of those in Star Wars. Heck, actually, to go back to what I was saying earlier, even the reason I watched my first Kurosawa movies is someone said that Kurosawa influenced Star Wars. So I'm like, really? Okay. (laughs) So as a kid, I actually watched Kurosawa movies, which were way above me at the time. Now I can appreciate them, of course. But at the time, it was like, these are kind of weird and boring. Well, except for that one about the guy who's (laughs) the men who tread on the tiger's tail. That one I actually liked when I was a kid, but most of them I didn't like, even the Hidden Fortress. 
Okay, that's the one with the guys with the headbands and they shout at each other, isn't it? Yes, yeah. Okay. The Hidden Fortress is the one that they claim has the most influence on Star Wars because it's like a princess and a general wandering around trying to find a lost treasure, I think it is. Oh, yeah, it's been a long time since I see I just remember the headbands. Because, yeah, and then the guys with the headbands you're talking about, I think, are the ones that R2 and 3PO are based off of. They're two guys that basically the princess and the general forced to go with them, if I remember right. Yeah, they, they were because uh, they were they were supposed to be like uh, like like warriors, and the headband measured your power. Because I remember the scene, and now your turn. The guy would go, Wah! and the little thing would light up in his handband headband to be like, "You are good. Get in our line." The next day, be like, okay. "You suck. Get out." You know. Okay, that's not the hidden fortress. Oh, which one? The Kurosawa movie doesn't have anything like that. Okay, which one am I thinking? You are thinking of oh crap! Which movie you're thinking of? You're thinking of like uh, I've seen what you're talking about, but I can't remember. It's either it's either a kung fu or a samurai movie. I think it's a kung fu movie, but it might be samurai. Okay. And there's someone who's listening to us right now who's actually screaming the name, but I can't quite hear it. <laughs> Put it in the comment section. This is killing me. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Stick it in the comment section if you know what the hell we're talking about. <laughs> But yes, I have seen what you're talking about. Crap, I have a feeling feeling I should know about it too. Yeah, because it was it was another. Uh, I thought it was the no, hidden fortress, but no, because Kurosawa never did anything that fantastic. Okay, I mean Kurosawa did stuff that was kind of magical esque sometimes, right? But he never did anything that was outright fantasy usually, and that would be pretty much outright fantasy, right? Um. Well, unless you count Throne of Blood, which is Macbeth, and which yeah. is kind of fantasy, but whatever. Kurosawa's version being far superior to any of the others. <laughs> Probably the best version of Macbeth I've ever seen is Kurosawa's Throne of Blood. Hmm. But that's neither here nor there. Right. Yeah, there was some, I think it was a kung fu movie, but I'm not sure, where, yeah, they scream and they like have ratings on their headbands. Yeah. Are you sure that that wasn't? There was a movie that was about a guy who became like a robo-ninja, except it was like set in this far future apocalyptic setting where the bad guys had taken over. And the scene you're talking about sounds like a scene that would have been in that movie where the original troopers were going to go on a suicide mission. And so the general was selecting which one of them would go. And they go on the suicide mission, but one of them gets grabbed by the bad guy and he gets turned into a robo-ninja, if I remember right. They basically rebuild him into this like super cyborg ninja. That might be it. And... He ends up being the good guy who helps out later on. I've, I haven't seen that movie in a long time, but it was one of my favorites when I was a teen. Okay. Yeah, I just remember the headbands. there have been a couple movies like that. Hmm. Yeah, I remember the guys with the headbands because I thought that was awesome. And then they scream in their headband. It's, it's like Dragon Ball. Kind of, yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. But, no, Hidden Fortress has basically, like, the princess, the general... And two guys that are basically human versions of R2 and 3PO. Okay, because I think I remember them. Yeah, and they're basically, if I remember right, it's been a long time, but I think, yeah, the princess and the general can script the two of them and force them to go with them because they figure they're going to need laborers to help them dig up the stuff that they find in the hidden fortress if they can find it. Okay. And I really should go back and watch that, actually. I think I'm going to put that on my list of things to watch in, in the next little while. Because it's been too long, and I'd probably appreciate it a lot more now. Yeah, because that sounds... funny thing about that is that sounds a lot closer to uh, some of the earlier scripts that Lucas did for Star Wars. 
coincidence? Dun dun. Exactly. Of course it's similar because originally that's basically what it was supposed to be. Yeah. And then we get into different versions later on. If I remember right, the original character was supposed to be a girl originally. There's there's a version where it is, and then there's a version where it's like Luke Skywalker is the kid's sidekick and his older brother is the hero. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of if 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 you seen that script when you see what they did with Biggs and Luke, it was kind of that relationship, but the other way around. Right. Huh. So Biggs is actually at one point in the script evolution was Luke's older brother then. Sort of. Yeah, I don't think he was Biggs at that time, but it was that same idea that he was the guy that was going off to 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 be the hero and get trained and all that. Because mm-hmm. a lot of the earlier versions, it wasn't um, that the evil army guys took over and then the, the, the peasants had to organize their uprising. There were like two separate military forces that were fighting each other. Right. Huh, interesting. Well, I know that there's a version that came out, a version of the script. I think it was the Starkiller script, Legend of Starkiller one, yeah. that they recently adapted into the Star Wars. It's actually a comic book. I think either Dark Horse or Marvel released it like about a year ago. Yeah, it was Dark Horse where uh, Han Solo's like a fish monster. Yeah, did you actually read them? I never got to. No, I've read the I've read the scripts that those were based on. Huh. I was curious about the comic because, yeah, that was like a little, it was weird. There should be probably collections of the comic, I bet, sitting in chapters at the moment or sitting in your nearby bookstore. So you should probably check that out sometime. I should because I'm deathly curious. Huh, that would be interesting. Huh. Yeah, because the, the, the Warring Factions, I think, was like when it was like the Jedi Bindu series. The Jedi Bindu series? That sounds familiar. Can you explain? Yeah, that was like the an older version of, of the script. And if I remember correctly, that was the one where it was like the equivalent of Luke's older brother who was supposed to be the hero. And he worked with the general and like the princess was the uh like the, the advisor and the, the liaison for for the military and it was actually like army versus army. Interesting. Well, you know where the term Jedi comes from, right? No. You didn't know that? Oh, okay. <laughs> Jedi comes from Sengoku Jidai. Oh, okay. Which, as you probably know, is the Japanese term for the Warring States period. Yeah, okay. That makes sense. And so they refer to, um, basically, samurai action films are referred to as Jidai Geki. Yeah. I had no idea that that was Jedi. Yeah, and he Lucas corrupted Jedi into Jedi. Okay. Huh. There you go. And you call yourself a <laughs> Japanese culture fan. Huh. You should be ashamed. Uh. And it, so that will give you an idea of how strongly Japanese culture influenced Star Wars. There's a reason I say Lensman dipped in soy sauce. Yeah, I can totally see that too. There's actually an interview I read with a guy named, I think it was Robert Dunham, mm-hmm. who was an actor who was working in Japan at the time, back in the 70s. And one day his studio called him. He's an American actor. He appeared in a bunch of uh, kaiju films. I think he's in like X from Outer Space. Oh, okay. And he's the generic white guy who pops up in all those movies. Blonde hair. 
kind of roundish face. Yeah, I know who he is. Okay, there we go, him. And anyway, he um, one day he gets a call from his studio, and they basically say, yeah, we need you to take this American around and show him around all the studio and show him like some filming and stuff like that. He wants to see it. And he's like, do I have to do it? And they're like, yes, okay, fine. So he goes out, and he takes this guy around, and he shows him every place, and he shows them them filming, and he shows them whatever the guy wants to see. And lasts for a couple days, and he says the guy was an all right guy. And um, the big deal, though, is that this guy's name was George Lucas. Right. <laughs> and he was basically there just scouting out, like, uh, Japanese culture stuff for some reason. I'm not quite sure exactly why Dunham didn't know why in the interview, but he did talk about how uh, he, gave, he gave Lucas a tour around. So Lucas definitely spent some time in Asia, you know, picking up some Asian cultural stuff that he would later incorporate into Star Wars. Right. I could see that. I could definitely see that. So Star Wars definitely had its fair share of Asian cultural influence. Yeah. And I would say it probably had a strong influence from the whole Kung Fu culture of the time, too. Remember, Kung Fu films were exploding at that point in the 70s, too. Yeah. True. In fact, actually, again, I would say my love of Kung Fu and Wuxia probably comes from Star Wars. Well, okay. Stylistically, if you look at it, Star Wars is actually Wuxia in a lot of ways. Yeah, it... it it is, except the big fight scene between Obi-Wan and Vader was a little slower because the guy playing Obi-Wan was like a thousand and the guy playing Vader had a hundred pounds of like equipment on. Well, yeah, they weren't exactly jumping around, bouncing off walls and clashing swords in the middle of the air. No. But if they could have, they would have. I mean, you can see the, the Wuxia leaps all around, like the, where they're jumping incredible distances and everything using the Force. Yeah. That's right out of, like, Wuxia movies. Yeah, and you could see in the later movies that there was more of that, which implies that it's what they wanted to do, but at the time, with the technology and effects and that, you just couldn't. Well, plus I think they felt they were limited by, quote-unquote, realism a little bit, too. Yeah. Yeah, maybe I could see that. By the way, if anyone doesn't know what I'm talking about when I say wuxia, I'm talking about movies like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, the Chinese swordplay movies where the heroes have mystic powers and can jump all around, and sometimes they're called the Flying Swordsman movies. Chopsaki. You... No, Chopsaki <laughs> is actually Kung Fu. Oh, well, Chopsaki is that with no budget. Not exactly. They are different from each other, but we'll do a show on that later on. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I want to do a whole episode just on like Kung Fu and Wuxia and the differences and the whole genre thing. But let's just say that Star Wars is heavily influenced by it. And I'd say that was one of the things that attracted me to Wuxia stories when I started to be exposed to them was, oh my God, this is just like Star Wars. Right. Like in theme and style. You know, wandering swordsmen with mystical powers who are involved in clan wars and fighting great battles sometimes and uh, sometimes leading armies and involved with like weird mystical societies and weird bad guys with superpowers and everything. Hmm, this sounds familiar. <laughs> Makes sense. It's almost as though they're the same thing. Dun, dun. So, exactly. <laughs> Although, as things went on, Star Wars has kind of diverged a little bit from Wuxia, but they've definitely still... Even the Clone Wars has little bits of Wuxia in it. Yeah. Like, style-wise and such. Maybe, actually, even maybe even more than the original Star Wars did. Well, yeah, the prequels, definitely. Especially when you see, like, Yoda go all apeshit on Lord Dooku there. That was, uh... Oh, that's definitely Asian martial arts yeah. style. Yeah. There's no question on that. I mean, 
But um, so Star Wars has its fair share of Asian influence um, from both Japanese and Chinese sides. And it's definitely come around where it's influenced um, anime, as we've talked about. I think anime and Star Wars have a very symbiotic relationship, especially during the 1980s. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a reason why the Gundams, the giant robots in Mobile Suit Gundam, have beam sabers. <laughs> they're not trying to hide anything. No, they're not. <laughs> and they're the new types. Yeah, and the new types, they're piloted by guys who have uh, weird Jedi-like powers. Yeah. Hmm, let me think. <laughs> it's almost as though. So, anime was influenced by Star Wars, and Star Wars has influenced anime, and round and round we go. Yeah. Huh. Well, I think um, one of the things, like, after talk the, this talk here and thinking on it, where I think Star Wars made the big impact that it did, I know for myself, as a kid of the era, I sort of measure life as, like, pre-Star Wars and post-Star Wars. Yeah, you mentioned that in another episode. Okay, can you tell us more about that? Yeah, because it, it's, it's the sort of thing when you finally got to uh, Return of the Jedi... Mm-hmm. That capped the whole thing off, and it just seemed like that was the grand finale for a whole decade. Mm-hmm. That that everything, especially like science fiction, everything escapist at all, had borrowed heavily from Star Wars, uh, partly because that was the big seller, and partly because that's it made such a big impact on the audience. Mm-hmm. And then after Jedi, you can see that movies are a little different, um different themes like the uh the science fictiony thing kind of takes a back seat a little bit more to the uh you go back well you go back to like the 70s to like the 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 tough guy cop drama and the wacky mm-hmm. team comedy it was like it was like a reset right you know it's funny you say that that was a shift like that there was an error shift going on there maybe it's a complete coincidence but i remember i discovered at a certain point that um the year Star Wars A New Hope came out, the Atari 2600 came out. Uh-huh. Okay? Do you know what year the video game home boom died? It was 84. Yeah, the same year Return of the Jedi came out. <laughs> it's really weird. The entire video game boom, like of the late 70s, early 80s, coincides exactly year for year with the Star Wars cycle as well. Right. I have a funny feeling that maybe it's just a coincidence, but maybe there was some actual cultural shifting going on during that period. I, I think there was, because, um, like I was saying, after looking at it and having our talk here, the original Star Wars movie was kind of uh, a conglomeration of everything that had been going on entertainment-wise during the, the, the period that immediately preceded it. And, mm-hmm. and I think, again, that's why it was so popular, because no matter what you were into, there was a little bit of it in there somewhere. Mm-hmm. And it's like that was the capper for a whole era of entertainment that um, after that, you kind of had reached the peak that you could reach with everything that came before. And then once that was totally done, people had to start looking in different directions for stuff. Yeah. I think we'd reached the peak, and now things were changing. I mean, it was a transition period, yeah. right? Um, also, things like computer games were entering the home. Also, in 84, we had VCRs coming. Yep. We were in the almost, uh, I don't want to call it the pre-information age. 
like we weren't quite at the computer age yet, right? Like in terms of home computer age, but we were just kind of getting into it. Well, there was there was that, and um, I mean, that's where you start getting uh, cyberpunk as a genre, mm-hmm. and I think it was because a big change culturally that affected uh, entertainment was the idea that when Star Wars came out, science fiction happened out there. It was right. a galaxy far, far away. Whereas mm-hmm. when it was done and you were entering, I guess they called it the micro-age, right. science fiction was starting to be something personal. It was something that happened to you in your house. Right. Interesting. I hadn't thought of that. Huh. Because that was the the whole point of, yeah, like the, the cyberpunk authors was that... It it wasn't this other time or other place. It was normal life had now been infringed upon by all of the science fiction-y things. That's interesting. It goes back to uh, William Gibson, the guy who wrote Neuromancer and Johnny Mnemonic and the other uh, cyberpunk classics. Mm-hmm. You know, he said a number of years ago, this wasn't back in the 80s, he said this in the 2000s, but he said that he doesn't consider himself a science fiction writer anymore because the future caught up with him. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and I think in some ways that that happened, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that was the transition period, I guess, between the old days and the new. Hmm, yep. Interesting. I hadn't thought of that. And, hmm. and then, like I say, Star Wars was the capper that it took all of those ideas that were pre-existing, tied them up into one big bow, and then when it ended and we opened the box, now we had to, to do something different. It changed the way that people saw stuff like that. It's just too bad that since Star Wars came out, we haven't really had another major paradigm shifter on its scale. Yeah, I think um, the closest... Because we... we're kind of burning it out. Well, there's that. The cycles happen faster. I think um, part of what made Star Wars popular was when it came out, it wasn't in your face. Mm-hmm. Like, you could discover it for yourself. Whereas nowadays, the next big thing, um, like I'd say, uh, I use the example of Avatar, that they were advertising right. a year before the movie came out. Yeah, you're basically told what the next big thing is going to be. Yeah. Yeah, I think hmm. I think the last genuine one we had was uh, probably Harry Potter. Yeah, that's true. No one expected it to be a big thing. The book just came out and it took off. Yeah. And it would you say Harry Potter was a paradigm shifting work though? Like, did it change society? Um, it, in some ways, I guess a little. Yeah, but it, it wasn't to the degree that like Star Wars did. Hmm. Because again, when Star Wars hit, it created what we now know as marketing. Right. Prior to that, you didn't really contemplate a line of action figures and jewelry and nobody discoed up your theme song. <laughs> but but mm-hmm. but after that, people saw that there was there was value in this. Like the, the company saw that, no, people will buy stuff that we put this name on. People will buy stuff that looks like this character. Yeah. And and Harry Potter was uh it was a new step of that, but it didn't add to the uh to the overall societal formula i guess you'd say Mm -hmm. okay i could see that i could definitely see that so here's a question then just let's finish this appropriately Uh on the day this comes out i believe today the new star wars film comes out part of the reason why we're recording this and so i have to ask you are you going to go see it um, probably not at the theater, because I hate leaving my house, and I hate people, and I hate crowds. 
Okay, those would be good reasons <laughs> not to. Are you going to see it? Probably. I mean, I feel kind of obligated to. Mm-hmm. After all, it's going to be the first completely eco-friendly Star Wars film. By which I mean, of course, that it's 100% recycled material from the old stuff. <laughs> Good night, folks. <laughs> actually, I should give the credit where it's due. That's actually a joke from our mutual friend, Chad. <laughs> and he's probably right. It looks from the trailers like it's basically just all the elements of the old one put together. Well, no, R2's a ball in this one. Uh, oh, it's totally different. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Um, I think the only different elements will be the elements they borrowed from the Hunger Games. Right. And now you're scaring but, me. But except for that, well, no, because it's meant for the Hunger Games audience, right? Right. That's what it's meant for. It's meant for the modern young adult fandom audience as much or if not more so than it's meant for like the old fans. Right. Probably more so. Because after all, they want to get them while they're young. Yeah, and we're all old and dying off, so... This is exactly right. So they don't really care about us anymore. Damn them. It's, it's targeted towards the new generation. Right. They're taking as much of the old as they can, but they're really reshaping it for the new. And maybe that's a good thing. Maybe this will turn out to be a great film because of it. Yeah. My suspicion is it will be an okay film. I don't think it's going to suck. Right. But I think that despite what people are going to say for the next couple months, because thanks to the hype, everyone's going to convince themselves they loved it, whether it's good or not. I think that probably it will be, you know, maybe a nice 7 out of 10 film, maybe 6 out of 10. I don't think it's going to suck, but it probably won't be amazing either. Right. Well, wait and That's see. That's just my guess, though. Yeah, yeah, wait and see. Yeah. Cautiously optimistic. You probably should be. Yes, cautiously optimistic. <laughs> anyway, on that note, um, good night, Don. Thanks for your chat about Star Wars. Thanks for sharing some of your Star Wars memories with us. Mm-hmm. And... Um, to our all our operatives, we will see you next episode. See you in two weeks. Next up, ep- good night. Next episode, Star Wars Holiday Special. Be here, Don. You're scaring our audience. <laughs> they won't come back if you say that. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Department of Nerdly Affairs. If you want show notes or to tell us why we're wrong, head on over to ObeyTheDNA.com and join the discussion. If you enjoyed the show, please tell a friend. And remember, to master the nerdly arts takes time, perseverance, and a whole lot of nachos. Do not be discouraged, for you too can be a light in the darkness. See you next time.